This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to Truly Criminal, the home of true crime. To see the video version of this case, including the footage and photos, you can find us on YouTube. Just search for Truly Criminal. Today, we're in Montana, the largest landlocked state in the USA. Montana boasts gorgeous views, rocky mountains, tranquil lakes, and breathtaking hiking routes. And, for these reasons among many, it is a hugely popular and busy tourist area, especially around the summer months. Two people that called Montana home was 21-year-old Jordan Lynn Graham and 24-year-old Cody Johnson. Cody was born in San Jose, California, and grew up with his mother Sherry after his parents divorced. Cody was her only child, and the pair were extremely close. Sherry soon decided she wanted to move out of California completely, and the pair started a new life in Montana. Friends said Cody just loved to make people laugh. He was over the top, and always happy to play the class clown to cheer people up. He loved everything outdoors, fishing, shooting, and taking long walks, and one of his biggest passions was doing up cars and racing them with his friends. After school, the car-loving Cody got a job making custom-built vehicles, and naturally, he loved it. His boss was his close friend Cameron, and his career was flourishing. He told people, however, that he felt something was missing. He wanted to settle down, meet someone and raise a family in Montana. His single life would soon change when, in 2011, Cody met Jordan Graham. Jordan was quite shy, more reserved and introverted than Cody, only opening up if she was really comfortable around someone. When she did, people said she shared the same sense of humour as Cody, and the pair seemed a great match. Jordan also shared his love of the outdoors and travelling, and they spent a lot of time hiking and touring scenic routes in the area. One of the couple's favourite places to visit was the over 700 miles of trails that made up the famous Glacier National Park. Jordan also loved children, often helping to babysit her friend's kids, and she too was keen to have children of her own. Jordan came from a religious household and spoke a lot about how strict this could be. There were a lot of rules, one of which was no sex before marriage. Cody told people he was infatuated with Jordan, and before long, he would be attending church with her. Friends and family said their relationship appeared to be going from strength to strength. Cody was besotted, and told his mother he had found the person he wanted to spend the rest of his life with. So, after a year of dating, in December 2012, 
when Jordan made a very special announcement on social media, no one was surprised. After six months of planning, on June 29, 2013, Jordan and Cody were married. The wedding seemed to reflect the young couple perfectly, a magical ceremony held outdoors, with the pair even writing their own song for them to have for their first dance. Jordan sobbed uncontrollably as she walked down the aisle and wasn't really making eye contact with Cody, looking at the ground a lot instead. But for someone who was more introverted, this wasn't a surprise. Cody, however, was beaming. There were plenty of gushing speeches about the couple. It was a beautiful event for them both. After the big day was over, the couple moved into their first home and opted for doing this up and decorating with their time off, rather than travelling anywhere together for their honeymoon. Cody had booked a week off work and was due back on the 8th of July. Sunday, July 7th, 2013. Cody had made plans with his father-in-law Stephen to go kayaking that day, but he later contacted him and cancelled the plans, saying Jordan had a surprise for him. Another friend of Cody's also said he had called off a round of golf for the exact same reason. Cody and Jordan then went to an afternoon church service, before going to the lake and then heading back to church. After this, they had a late dinner at Dairy Queen with some friends before leaving together. July 8th, 6am. Cody's week off had come to an end and he was due to start work early, but the usually prompt and hard-working Cody failed to show up. Because of how out of character this was, Cody's boss Cameron decided to go to the couple's house and, panicked, he forced his way inside. There was no one there and there was no sign of a break-in or anything being overtly or obviously wrong. Nothing inside was broken or smashed, and nothing seemed to be missing. He then went into the garage to see if Cody's car was there. He found Cody's phone. Just the same as most people, Cody was never without his phone, and Cameron quickly filed a missing persons report. The first person detectives needed a statement from was Cody's wife. Jordan told officers that on the way back from Dairy Queen, Cody had answered the phone and ended up having a 30-minute conversation. She didn't know who was on the end of the phone, but Cody seemed visibly agitated. When they pulled up to the house, Jordan realised her phone was about to die, and she had left her charger at work. She got back in the car and headed to her workplace, leaving Cody in the garage. She then got a text from Cody, saying he was going to take a drive with someone. She arrived back at the house to see him leaving in a dark-coloured car that had Washington State licence plates, But Jordan said this wasn't unusual. As everyone knew, Cody loved cars and she said he would often take off with a new group of friends to race, sometimes very late into the evening. Jordan said she hadn't wanted to report him missing in case he came back and was angry at her for overreacting. Cody and Jordan's friends quickly rallied around and started trying to access his social media accounts, hoping to work out where he might have gone. Authorities obtained Cody's call logs and discovered that a Washington number 
had made a call to Cody around the time Jordan had said. Given the fact that Jordan remembered seeing Washington license plates, this was a good lead. The number was linked to a man named Jose. Jose told police he rang Cody to talk to him about some tools he had borrowed from him. There was nothing unusual about the conversation and nothing Jose could remember as being off about Cody at the time. Jose was cleared thanks to a strong alibi and police concluded, although strange, especially given the Washington license plates, it was simply just an odd coincidence. The search for Cody began to widen. People were out all hours of the day and night, and his friends and family were trying everything they could think of to find him. It had now been three days since Cody was last seen, and police weren't getting any further. Jordan was in and out of the station answering various questions, questions which weren't being met with the same answers twice. So he walked out, made a call or something. I don't know if he made a call, he was in the garage, and I got a text saying he was going and he left. What's going on as far as where he might have gone or who he might be with? I got a message saying that he was going to go for a ride with some of his out-of-town buddies that were visiting. I have no idea who they were, but he always told me this one thing is, when his friends came to visit, he would take them to Glacier Park. You guys weren't having any kind of argument? No. I don't know anything more, any of whereabouts or anything. I'm getting some inconsistencies in what you're telling me with other information that I've already gathered, okay? Mm-hmm. And I've spoke to a few people, and it's important that I know that you're telling me the truth on things. And what I know. Well, I mean, and I understand, understand that. but I think that there's more. One day, Jordan arrived back at the police station with her mother, armed with an email she had just received. I got an email this morning from some guy outside was Tony. The email was from someone calling themselves Carman Tony. It was short and blunt. It read, Hi Jordan, my name is Tony. There is no bother in looking for Cody anymore. He is gone. Call off the search. The email went on to say that Cody went off with some friends for a hike that night and had fallen off the cliff. Everyone was shaken and they hoped it was either not true or, if true, Cody could still be saved. I just want to go. Jordan said she did in fact know a Tony S that worked with Cody. Authorities found him and asked him to come in for an interview. Tony hadn't seen or spoken to Cody in a while, and he had never used an email linked with Carman Tony. He was happy to hand over his phone and computer records. And with this, police were back at square one again. They subpoenaed Google in regards to the email, as well as Cody and Jordan's phones, to gather any data. Given the contents of the email pointing towards Cody falling off the cliff, Jordan gathered up her own search party and they headed up into the rocky terrain of Glacier National Park. Some of the roads on the drive up were narrow, winding and long, and given the span of the park, people knew they could be searching for weeks, if he was even there. A day later, they went back again, but this time, Jordan seemed to be on a mission. They drove past many roads and cliff edges, any of which Cody could have been on or near, 
and carried on up, getting higher and higher. Jordan was telling people she wanted to go to a specific spot. She told her friends that it was a place he had wanted to see before he died, and the Holy Spirit was leading her there. At one point, Jordan abruptly stopped the car. She leapt out near what is called the Loop Trail. Off of the track, there was a steep drop down past many sharp rocks and trees. It was undoubtedly treacherous, as the drop was a terrifying 300 feet. Despite this, Jordan climbed over the wall and headed for the edge. She leaned over and shouted to everyone behind that she could see someone at the bottom in the water. She then started shouting over and over that she knew it was Cody. The search party alerted the park rangers, but due to the time of night and how dangerous it was to try and get down, they had to wait until morning. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. At 8am on July 12th, the search for Cody Johnson came to a tragic end. On the way down the cliff, using ropes tied to trees, they found a blue trainer that matched the one Cody was wearing the day he went missing. They finally reached the bottom, and, lying face down in the shallow water near the waterfall, was Cody Johnson. Near to his body was a small piece of black cloth, and he wasn't wearing his wedding ring. As news began to spread that he had been found, his friends and family couldn't fathom why on earth he would have been up there at night in the first place. His friend Eddie said even though Cody loved seeing the sights and going on long walks up there, he wouldn't have ever steered off the path and climbed over the walls in the dark. Cody wasn't actually very good with heights. He never went too high up, and always stuck to the lower level tourist routes, with retaining walls around them. Eddie said once, he couldn't get up a ladder to fit a new light bulb for his mother, because of the height. Shortly after Cody was found, Jordan posted a photo on Instagram from their wedding day. The caption read, Miss you so much Cody, not a day will go by where I don't think about you. You will live on in my heart forever. I know you're in a better place now looking down on me. You're my angel. Love you with all my heart and soul. See you again one day. It had now been two weeks, and police were still searching for answers regarding the mystery email. While they did this, Cody was laid to rest. At his funeral, Jordan sat through most of it on her phone, showing no emotion. It could have been her way of processing and compartmentalising the situation, but her maid of honour and best friend Kimberly thought this was just too strange. 
After this, Kimberly promptly walked into the police station and started to shine a whole new light on the investigation. She asked to talk to officers about some interesting texts she had gotten off of Jordan in the weeks leading up to and just after the wedding. Despite their perfect nuptials, she recalled many a conversation with Jordan about how she seemed far more excited about planning the wedding rather than the thought of being married to Cody, more excited to be a bride than a wife. Others said that Cody, put simply, was always far more in love with Jordan than she ever was with him. Kimberly recounted a couple of times Jordan had asked her if she thought she was making the right decision. Other people would back this up and say Jordan was very nervous about the wedding night and wondered if she was making a mistake in committing to Cody. The night after the wedding, Jordan texts Kimberly saying, I don't know if all this was the right thing to do. So much happened last night, I just don't know. Kimberly replied, Last night at the wedding, or last night in the room. Jordan said, being married, and after the wedding. What happened after, Kimberly asked. I'd rather talk about what happened, not text about it. But, as the days progressed, the texts continued, using the, my period started spiel tonight, I freaking hope it works, because if I'm forced to do something, I'm going to freak out. On the night of July 7th, as the pair were leaving Dairy Queen after dinner, Kimberly received another text from Jordan, this time saying she wanted to talk to Cody about how she was really feeling. Kimberly said she would send positivity and prayers to them both, and, just before 9pm, Jordan replied and said, But dead serious, if you don't hear from me at all again tonight, something happened. Later that night, Jordan would turn up on Kimberly's doorstep, telling her the conversation hadn't gone down well. She said Cody got really angry, and she ended up leaving the house to go to her brother's. This, along with her seemingly knowing exactly where to find Cody, and the comments she had made about him wanting to see that place before he died, as well as her not being the one to report him missing, was all too odd. Kimberly said it was a sickening feeling, but she knew in her gut that Jordan was somehow responsible for Cody's death. She just didn't know how or why. Detectives already had their suspicions, given how many times her stories had changed, and Kimberly's proof of text messages only solidified their thoughts. After this, the IP address from the email came back. It actually pointed towards the email being set up and used in her stepfather's home, and, despite Jordan saying they were both separate the night as he had driven off, phone records confirmed this was a lie. Both phones were together in Glacier National Park at 9.17pm. Using this time frame, they managed to gather CCTV to the entrance of the park, which showed Cody's car and both of them inside. Police were no longer looking at the elusive car man Tony. They were now looking straight at Jordan Graham. Jordan was asked to come into the station and tell them the full truth about what had happened that night. She eventually broke down and told them she had started to talk to Cody about how she felt and it escalated into an argument. Cody said if this was how she felt, they should annul the marriage. Jordan, however, was worried about her reputation if they divorced a mere eight days after the wedding. How and why this came to be remains unclear, but they both got in the car and drove to the park where they set off on a trail. At one point, 
Jordan even mentioned a blindfold. She said they both walked over a bridge and then climbed over the retaining wall where the argument continued. I was feeling it should have waited a little bit longer and then got married. I wasn't feeling like a fall cloud I didn't want to do that trunk because I was afraid he could have fallen. He said I could do this with a blindfold on and he said I could just put it on, take a step, but I wouldn't even fall. And I kept going through my head that, you know, you are going to fall or something and then we were arguing some more. And he went to grab my arm and my jacket, and I said, no. I said, I'm not going to have to stop I'm going to defend myself. So I said, I want to go, and I pushed, and he went over. And then I took off and went home, or got my brother, and then went home. There was no planning on your part to, to kill Cody? No. Okay. You hadn't planned that you, until um, this whole thing just kind of happened in the heat of, yeah, heat of the emotion and the passion of that situation. So he would have fallen face first down yeah. the hill. Why did you continue to turn around and then push him off? I think it's because emotions were running so high. I was frustrated, I was angry, I was, I was every emotion I could ever think of. All at once. And I've never felt like that before. I've never experienced that. Such high emotion. What part do you personally feel responsible for? For the, the pushing me and falling. Despite her claiming it to be in the heat of the moment, and essentially an accident, officers weren't convinced. Why wouldn't she have run for help, rather than running to her stepfather's computer to fake an email? Why would Cody have climbed over the edge in the first place, when he was afraid of going near the cliff edge? Even for someone that wasn't afraid of heights, to go over a safety wall in the pitch black, above a 300-foot drop, wearing a blindfold seems an inconceivable thought. The latest on that newlywed accused of killing her husband just eight days after the wedding by pushing him off a cliff. Jordan Lynn Graham has now been officially charged with murder and is expected to be arraigned in court later today. A federal judge ordered her release, placing her under home detention and mandating she undergo a mental health evaluation. Johnson's friends and family say they're relieved she's finally been charged. It's going in the right direction and justice will be served, but at the end of the day, we're still missing a huge part of our lives. Jordan Lynn Graham was arrested and charged with second-degree murder and making false statements, but this was soon upped. Prosecutors originally charged Montana newlywed Jordan Graham with second-degree murder for pushing her husband, Cody Johnson, off this cliff in Glacier National Park. But now a grand jury has added a charge of premeditated first-degree murder. Levi and Latani Blaisdell have known Graham since childhood. Levi introduced the couple. She was crying hysterically before she even got to the altar. There was no um, joy that she was about to get married. After her husband's death, the Blaisdells say they noticed more strange behavior from the widowed bride. Whenever I saw her, she was just herself. Nothing happened, no emotion, nothing. It was her same old life. So we always had that little bit in the back of our mind saying, you know, I think she may be involved. As the trial began, her defense team went straight in, fighting for a second-degree murder conviction, claiming it was an accident in the midst of a heated argument. But the prosecution felt strongly that this was far more than an accident. They said the fact she had told him she had a surprise for him, and he was found near something that may have been used as a blindfold, showed this was very much premeditated. This, along with the phone records, the fake email, 
the failure to alert anyone or report him missing, and the lack of emotion after the fact, added more to their case, that she didn't care about what she had done, had planned it, and hoped to pin it on someone else. Jordan Graham walked into what would be a damaging second day for her defense in her murder trial. Prosecutors played video of police interviews where the jury saw and heard Graham lying to police. Sergeant Chad Zimmerman says on video to Graham, I'm getting the feeling you're not being 100% honest with me. Graham also lied to her own 16-year-old brother. He testified that Graham brought him to the cliff to discover Johnson's body. The teenage boy sobbed, saying... She told one lie, was asked to tell the truth. She said it again. She had to keep adding more lies to cover it up. Graham even lied to her best friend and matron of honor, Kim Martinez. She testified that before Johnson's death, Graham claimed her new husband would grab her and had a terrible temper. That was hard to hear for Johnson's friends who call it another lie. Just he's a great friend of mine, just a really good guy. Uh, Just a tragic situation that we're in right now. On December 12, 2013, just four days after her trial began, Jordan's defence team made an announcement. Jordan Graham entered court a free woman. She left today in handcuffs. In a stunning about-face, the 22-year-old newlywed changed her plea for second-degree murder to guilty. Graham stood before the judge and said this was the truth about what really happened at the cliff at Glacier National Park. I wasn't thinking of where we were, Graham told the judge. It was a reckless act. I just pushed. Just as the lawyers were about to present closing arguments, the defense says they got offered a deal from the prosecution. They would drop the charges of first-degree murder and lying to federal authorities if Graham agreed to plead guilty to second-degree murder. All I can say is, is that the ultimate plea that was entered was Ms. Graham's choice. When Graham uttered the word guilty, her former mother-in-law wept. Her parents remained silent, leaving the courthouse and their daughter in the custody of U.S. Marshals. Jordan Graham's plea deal gave her 30 years in federal prison, with no chance of parole any earlier. In exchange for her plea, prosecutors agreed to drop the charge of premeditated first-degree murder, as well as one count of making a false statement to authorities. After her sentencing, the judge said, There's only one person in this room that knows what happened, and I don't think she's been entirely truthful. Jordan Graham wants to withdraw her guilty plea. Jordan filed a motion to withdraw her plea on March 26, 2014, but this motion was denied. For those that Cody left behind they still struggle with how on earth things got to such a point. They say as broken-hearted as he would have been to end the marriage, he would have absolutely walked away if it meant she was happy, because her being happy was the most important thing to him. His affectionate, animated and vivacious personality is missed dearly by everyone that knew and loved him. For Sherry, the pain of losing her only child, and still never knowing why, haunts her. Cody's best friend said... He did so much for everybody, I just didn't realise how much he did for me until he was gone.